Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tami Soluhuku and Tami Kruza. In our top stories, voting gets underway in Mozambique. Humanitarian situation deteriorates in Somalia. Ebola outbreak creates food crisis in West Africa. In economics, Canadian mining group says Zambia's decision to raise royalties would discourage future ventures. And in sports news, Nigeria Super Eagles take on Sudan today. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Mozambicans have started voting in elections seen as a test for peace following a deal between the government and the armed opposition party Renamo to end a two-year insurgency. More than 10 million people are eligible to vote for the president, parliament and provincial assemblies at about 17,000 polling stations. We now cross to Nampola City where our correspondent Bright Sonjiro is. Bright, good morning to you. With Nampula being the largest with Nampula being the largest of the eleven provincial constituencies and about two point one million registered voters, did polling stations open on time? And also can you give us a general feel of those who have already voted? The voting as we started at seven o'clock and the other uh, polling station where they are uh, they had a problem and now they have started uh, voting around uh, uh, seven uh, fifty-two. That means uh, eight eighty to eight uh, have fixed everything, and now people have started uh, voting. There's a large number uh, of the uh, electorate who want to cast their vote in a very aggressive. I talk to this people. Well, we seem to have lost our correspondent there, Bright Sonjira, who was giving us the latest in Nampula City as Mozambicans cast their ballots in general elections. Meanwhile, Mozambican nationals living in South Africa's Mpumalanga and Limpopo provinces are also casting their ballots. Hundreds are queuing at polling stations in Dan Village outside Zanin in Limpopo province. Earlier, there were no voters, yet in Guiani, also in Limpopo province. Witness Diva had this report about the situation earlier. The voters are being transported from villages around Zanin to come and cast their votes at the Den polling station. Mozambican's Electoral Commission officials are already in the area ready to conduct voting. The officials say the stations will only open at 9 o'clock. Police officers have not yet arrived at the stations. Meanwhile, the situation is still quiet in Guiani. Voting will not take place in Palavora as there was a technical glitch during the registration period. 
They are growing concern, they are growing fears rather for the safety of former Madagascan President Mark Rovalamanan after he was arrested by more than 60 balaclava-clad armed men. The men had shot their way into his home in the capital, Antananarivo, on Monday. His family and legal representatives have not been allowed access to him. They say their attempts to find out about his whereabouts have failed amid new rumours that he has been forced onto a foreign aircraft and flown out of the country to an unknown destination. His family is seeking assurances about his safety from Madagascan authorities and SEDEC so far without success. They've denied a statement by the current president that Rovala Manan has not been arrested but moved to safety away from various threats against him. South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa is again in Lesotho today in his capacity as SEDEC facilitator ahead of the reconvening of the Mountain Kingdom's Parliament. The Lesotho Parliament will be opened by King Litsie III on Friday. The reconvening of Lesotho's Parliament comes against the background of the recently signed Maseru Facilitation Declaration earlier this month. Prime Minister Tom Tabane dissolved Parliament in June. The declaration was signed by all Lesotho to his political parties. And finally, South Africa's Minister of Justice and Correctional Services, as well as the National Commissioner, are infuriated by statements made in court yesterday in Oscar Pistorius's pre-sentencing hearing about the state of the country's prisons. A legal representative of the department was sent to meet with State Prosecutor Gerinel and his team before he continues with his cross-examination of Probation Officer Annette Vergeer this morning. Jacques Steenkamp reports. State Prosecutor Gary Nell will allegedly meet with a legal representative of the Department of Justice and Correctional Services at the North Gauteng High Court. This comes as the National Commissioner requested that the prosecution personally receives the correct information with regard to the condition of our prisons and whether or not the disabled Pistorius can be accommodated if he is to be incarcerated. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It is 8.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, polling stations across Mozambique are open are due to open at 7 this morning. The country will today hold its fifth democratic presidential and parliamentary elections since 1994. Ten million voters have registered to vote representing about 90% of the eligible voting population. The police are on high alert in case of any violence following skirmishes in parts of the country between the supporters of different parties. Jonathan Lugu reports. The long-awaited voting day has finally come. Thousands of Mozambican citizens will be flocking to various police stations to make a choice of who will change their lives. Among them, Thousands of youth who would be voting for the first time, but 26-year-old Maria Da Silva will cast her vote for the second time. Da Silva, a middle-class person, works for a telecommunication company in the city of Beira. She says this year's election will be a tough contest, especially between Frelimo and Mozambique Democratic Movement, dominating the northern part of Mozambique. 
também ele está, o candidato está a focar mais na, nos problemas do povo, que é a educação e o emprego para jovens. Voting is underway in Mozambique, where 10 million voters have registered to vote, representing about 90% of the eligible voting population. For an update from Mozambique, we're now joined on the line from Beira by our reporter, Jonathan Lungu. Good morning, Jonathan, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Okay, can I, uh, can I take you through to the mayor? He's now talking. Can I take you through to him? It's the majority part and makes the appointment, which means that we citizens are going to win and the parties included in this point. And this is a happy day for you. As fantastic day is the first time as my party is running full over the country. We've done a very nice campaign and the end of the day you have to vote and wait for the results. Thank you for possibly the president of the country? I hope so. <laughs> thank, thank you. you so much. Thank, thank you, you so thank much. you. Okay, um, that was the mayor of uh, Beira, uh, Mr. David Simangu. Uh, he has just voted here in Beira in one of the voting stations. Yeah, he has just said that uh, the voting went well and uh, he is hoping that everything will go well. As we, we have heard him uh, talking about uh, himself as well as the, his party. Now, Jonathan, tell me, there seems to be a lot of uh, uh, excitement going on in the background. What is the mood like as people go in to, to vote? Uh, can you please repeat that question? I was saying that uh, there seems to be a lot of excitement in the background. What is the mood like as people go into the polling station to cast their vote? Okay, um, we have just spoken to a few people here uh, who voiced their uh, happiness. They, they are very happy that this day finally came. And um, as, as we are here in one of uh, these polling stations, um, the queues are very long and there are many, many people here uh, who are coming to vote. Some uh, told us that they were here around 2 o'clock in the morning. Some said they arrived at 4 o'clock uh, to cast their vote. So I, I believe um, the, the, this year's result uh, will, will, will come will come with uh, a lot of, uh, of surprises as we've seen um, the voter attendance um, is, is quite Thank you. Now, Jonathan, Jonathan, we heard of issues earlier with the polling stations in Nampula where some of them didn't open on time. Did polling stations in Beira open at exactly 7 o'clock this morning? Yes, the, all voting stations were uh, set to, to um, open at uh, 7 o'clock. Uh, but I believe that, uh, as you are saying, that there are some uh, voting stations uh, somewhere up in Nampula, which is about uh, uh, 800 kilometers from here. Uh, they, uh, uh, I'm told that there were some uh, delays in opening the, uh, the, the, the voting stations. But around here, where we are, in Beira, um, things went well. And as we have heard uh, David Simang was saying, uh, that there were no hiccups. Um, uh, uh, the, the, the polling stations 
opened in time. Now, uh, Jonathan, can you tell us whether when people finish casting their votes, are they leaving uh, the precinct of the voting area or are they just hanging around because we heard of reports of people uh, hanging around at the voting station, at the polling stations until uh, saying they would be there until 6 o'clock in the evening when the results start trickling in? Yeah, well, some uh, after voting, um, they leave. Some uh, we can see they are hanging around. Some when 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 they are done, uh, they go to uh, the trucks which are waiting outside, taking them to various uh, places where they are staying. And uh, what we have been told is that um, the voting stations will close at uh, six o'clock. Uh, but um, if there will be people on the queues by that time. They'll be given some keep, uh, some coupons so that uh, they can continue voting um, until until they, they, they are finished or until the, the queues are done. Now, Jonathan, Frelimo has dominated the country's politics since independence from Portugal in 1975. Is that dominance likely to continue or is Renamo uh, looking like they have a good chance of taking over this time around? I don't see, I don't see um, Renamo uh, uh, having any chance this time because we went around the streets um, um, uh, on, man, on Monday and yesterday. Uh, we were also looking around for posters and banners. We have seen quite a few banners and posters hanging around um, of, of uh, Renamo. And uh, we, we have seen a lot of... Um, um, MDM with the movement, uh, Mozambique move, uh, uh, Democratic Movement posters and banners, as well as as Renamo. But I think uh, the problem is that uh, Renamo hasn't done its groundwork or its paid work very well. Um, maybe because of its leader who was in the bush by that time, he didn't have enough time to uh, prepare for the elections. But anyway, it remains to be seen um, because. We also saw the campaigns. There were quite a, a few people who were uh, in those campaigns in, in, in different um, parts of, of the country. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was our reporter in Mozambique, Jonathan Lugu, joining us on the line from Beira. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The United Nations Special Envoy for Sexual Violence has been shocked by horrific sexual violence that has occurred in South Sudan over the past 10 months. Here's Channel Africa's James Shimayula with more. The United Nations Special Envoy for Sexual Violence, Zainabu Bangura of Sierra Leone, says throughout her years at the United Nations, she has never seen what she saw in South Sudan. Speaking at a press conference in South Sudan's capital, Juba, shortly after visiting several places in South Sudan where women were raped and girls defiled during the 10 months of ethnic conflict, Zainabu Bangura, who shared it as intermittently as she spoke said it's unbelievable it's painful it's very challenging to be able to see the conditions under which women live and the circumstances under which they have to live on a day-to-day basis the harassments and sexual violence that takes place 
at checkpoints and when the women go out to get food and when they go to get firewood. These are not conditions and circumstances under which women can live. Narrating saddening stories of rape and defilement by victims, Bangura said. I had a story of a woman who had just given birth who was raped. I had a story of an old woman who was raped. I had stories of children as young as 10, 11 years old who are being raped on a daily basis. Comparing the extent of rape and defilement in South Sudan to other similar cases around the world, Bangura, a citizen of Sierra Leone, had this to say. I have traveled around the world and I come from a conflict country, but I have never seen what I saw today. I came from Sierra Leone. I had the war. I was in the capital city when the capital city fell. We pick bodies in the street and bury them. I worked in Liberia for two years. I travel all the counties. I've gone to Somalia and I've gone to DRC. I've gone to Central African Republic. But in all my life, I've gone to Bosnia. In all my life and experience of nearly 30 years in public service, and in the UN and as a government minister, I've never seen what I've saw today. Bangura pointed out that most of the victims of rape are women and the children who stay in displaced persons' camps in areas such as Bentiu, in a unity state north of the capital, Jubab. Before concluding her press conference, the United Nations Special Envoy for Sexual Violence, Zainabu Bangura, said victims of rape and defilement asked her to deliver a message of peace to South Sudan President Salva Kiir and his political opponent, rebel leader, Riek Machar. They share their experience with me and what they have to go through on a daily basis, on a regular basis, the challenges, the risk. But then they gave me a message. They said, we want to give you one message to the president of South Sudan and to the opposition leader. Enough is enough. We want peace. They must sign that peace agreement and they have to keep to it because we want to go back home. Her visit to South Sudan comes at a time when the number of people that have been killed in ethnic fighting has reached more than 10,000 according to the United Nations, with nearly 2 million others having abandoned their homes and sought refuge in displaced camps or in neighboring countries. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shima. Another food crisis is on the doorstep of West Africa because of the impact of the Ebola epidemic on the agricultural sector. The warning has come from the president of the International Fund for Agricultural Development, IFAD, which focuses on reducing poverty in rural areas. Guinea, Sierra Leone and Liberia are the hardest hit by the outbreak, disrupting farming activities and increasing food prices, the UN says. In Sierra Leone alone, Kanayo Nyanza told Jocelyn Sambira 40% of farms have been abandoned and food has been left to rot in the fields. Africa, rise and shine. Uh, the three countries that are today unfortunately massively affected do not have the infrastructure and institutions to manage it properly. I understand that in Sierra Leone alone, 40% of the farms have been abandoned. Food is left in the fields to rot because farmers are either scared or they're no longer there to grow the food. Do you know what's going to happen in the few weeks from now when, when harvests are supposed to be in their granaries and there's no food? We are actually at the doorsteps of another food crisis in West Africa because not only 
Is it a question of the food not being produced because farms are abandoned? But a country like Senegal, that depends on a lot of food imports. So you see, in fact, the intra-regional trade is going to be affected. So we're looking at the food crisis not just in Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone, but in the whole of West Africa. And I think we have to begin to look at a future crisis and begin now to put in place the necessary foundations, infrastructure, to be able to attack the problem when it surfaces. I think you once said that if you invest in rural farmers, they will transform their rural spaces. Can you elaborate? There's a misconception that um, we just invest in agriculture as if agriculture by itself is an entity. But who are those who practice the art and the science of agriculture? It's people. It is rural people. So that is why if I invest in rural people, and we invest in rural people because the primary source of income for their livelihoods and employment is agriculture. You see the point here? Then, of course, what comes along with investing in people is investing in their own environment, their own social setting. By this, I mean investing in rural roads, in amenities, in energy, in irrigation, in social services, schools, clinics, and recreational facilities for the young people, transforming the rural space so it becomes attractive for the youth to stay and develop and make a life and a living for themselves. Talking about youth and migration and jobs, is this something that you feel the world leaders have understood, that by transforming these rural spaces, they can create jobs? I would say leaders of today are beginning to understand it. Why are they beginning to understand it? Because they can now see the massive impact of rural migration. And when youth are totally disillusioned, by their conditions in rural areas, they migrate to cities and urban spaces. But what do they get there? They get frustrated. They lose the social cohesion that the rural space, their villages and communities provide to them. They become highly susceptible to rhetoric and to extremism. And we know what happens. You know, we cannot isolate uh, the crisis in North Africa or the Arab Spring or the migrations that are taking place in the Americas from the south to the north to simple political instability, it's all linked to hunger and poverty. People are migrating because they believe there's better lives in the cities. So hundreds and hundreds of people are dying in in the Mediterranean because they're trying to migrate and they drown. Is that the legacy we're going to leave for future generations? You wrote an open letter to the African Union heads of state, and in that open letter you said that declarations don't feed people. Do you feel that your message has been understood? Has there any action been taken to follow up? Well, I was calling on African leadership, actually, to go beyond declarations and to go beyond conferences. That is true. But that does not mean that they are not doing some. I was basically saying that they have to double their efforts. You see, it is actually an irony. It is quite an irony because in the same breath, we know that at least six, if not eight, of the fastest-growing economies in the world are in Africa. And we talk about an African renaissance. But where is it going to happen? We know that these rapid growth rates that are taking place, economic growth rates or GDP growth rates, are being fueled by an extractive industry, by oil and gas, by diamond and by gold. But are we seeing the impact of this rapid growth in the social fabric of their societies? Uh, Is transformation actually taking place in the rural space? This is the time for us to grab the opportunity to begin to invest 
in the agricultural systems that make the fabric and the livelihoods of the rural space, who feed us. I mean, it's been done elsewhere. It's not difficult. When you look back 30 to 40 years ago, China, Brazil, Vietnam, where are they today? Where were they in those days? We know that China lost about a million people in the 70s, 80s, due to extreme famine. Brazil was an aid recipient 35 to 40 years ago. Today, Vietnam is the second or so largest exporter of rice. And rice production, by the way, in Vietnam, 60% is by small-scale producers, smallholder producers. So what, are, what am I saying? Small producers in countries that are, whose economy are based on agriculture can actually grow and transform their, their systems through an investment, a massive investment in agriculture and in the rural space. It can happen. It has happened, and it can be repeated in Africa. That was Kanayo Nyuanze, president of the International Fund for Agricultural Development, talking to Jocelyn Sambira. Meanwhile, Doctors Without Borders, MSF, has reiterated its call for more financial assistance to help curb the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Addressing the media in Johannesburg, South Africa, yesterday, MSF filed field workers spoke about the tough decisions they had to make while working in the region, where the virus has crippled health systems and killed over 4,000 people. Elizabeth Lidicha reports. As global health authorities scramble to contain the world's worst Ebola epidemic since the disease was identified in 1976, MSF has reached out to South Africans, calling for their support. Head of MSF South Africa, Dr. Neil Agid. Today we're calling on the people of South Africa to stand in solidarity with people of Guinea, Sierra Leone and Liberia during their darkest hours. One way to do this is to support MSF by donating to help to maintain our intervention. Since the start of the outbreak in March this year, the International Medical Humanitarian Agency says it has been responding to the growing Ebola crisis and remains the primary international organization fighting the disease. According to Agit, the world has failed miserably in its response to the Ebola virus. And so the spread of Ebola continues unabated as the response fails to curtail and bring down new infections. You know, MSF is really angry that the world and the international community is failing the people of Sierra Leone, Guinea and Liberia. It is hard to understand, to be frank with you, the media frenzy about individual contaminations of people in USA and in Europe. And we have to say categorically that rich nations have the resources to contain the spread of Ebola if it reaches their shores. It is the people of the impoverished communities in West Africa that are at highest risk of infection and death. At least 18 South African doctors working for MSF have been assigned to work in West Africa as part of the organization's international Ebola response. One of them is Dr. Stephen Kruger, who treated critically ill patients at an isolation center in Sierra Leone's Kailahun district. Relating his experience in fighting the virus, Kruger says they were confronted with many frustrations. Firstly, despite your best efforts and your hardest work, most of the time they still pass away. You soon realize that your repertoire of supportive management is very limited. And you can't help but sometimes ask yourself whether this is all just feeble. The truth is we will never know if our treatments really make a significant impact on the survival rate, but it would be unethical not to try. We are compelled to. Secondly, you are frustrated by the fact that your own infection control measures limits what you can do for the patient. We would love to give more intensive nursing care. We would love to give better medical care, but we simply can't. 
And the third frustration is that you struggle to build up relationships with your patients. Just the fact that you're wearing a mask means that they can't even see the expression on your face. Underfunded health systems in West Africa have been crippled by the virus, which has spiraled out of control and infected more than 8,000 people since the beginning of the year. As one of the most lethal diseases known to men continues to spread, many are asking how the crisis got so badly out of control and where is the World Health Organization in the Ebola outbreak. Jens Peterson is a humanitarian affairs advisor at MSF South Africa. I think it's a very pertinent and very relevant question because we're not saying that MSF is alone for beating our own chest and beating the MSF drum. It is our experience and you'll find in the vast coverage and opinions and writings on the current Ebola outbreak, various presentations, various opinions being presented of the failure to be very blunt of the institutions that are designed and made to respond to issues such as this, be it larger parts of the UN humanitarian system or the World Health Organization. I think numbers of infected and people having died from Ebola, I think the fact that we are having to try and rally and raise more attention and funds for our response to Ebola somewhat indirectly answers the question as to where is WHO and where are other actors. To be very honest, they're not there. Stung by the criticism, WHO officials say the World Health Body has been overstretched by a series of healthcare crises. They blame weak healthcare systems and uncooperative populations in poor African nations still reeling from civil war in the 90s for allowing the Ebola outbreak to explode. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Elizabeth Lidera in Johannesburg. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Today in history, in 1989, South African officials released eight prominent political prisoners from Robben Island. Among those leaders who were set free were Walter Sisulu, Ahmed Kathrada, Raymond Mshaba, Andrew Langeni, and Elias Mutsualedi. And that was today in history in 1989. It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines are up next with Anne Musa. Good morning. Mozambicans living in South Africa expected to cast their votes in half an hour's time. A short while ago, outgoing President Amanda Gebuza cast his vote at the Josina Michal Secondary School in Maputo. SEDEC facilitator to Lusutu, Cyril Ramaphosa, is again in the country today, ahead of the reconvening of the country's parliament by King Letia III on Friday. And South Africa's Justice and Correctional Services Department is confident it can convince the High Court in Pretoria about the ability of prisoners of prisons to house people with disabilities. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. 
Afrika Zora Afrika Amka na Unai Thank you and SABC Digital News is offering extensive coverage of the elections in Mozambique at www.sabc.co.za slash news. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The humanitarian situation in Somalia is deteriorating as drought conditions take hold, according to the UN humanitarian coordinator in the Horn of Africa country. Over one million people are in need of assistance. At least 50,000 children are set to be close to death. The Al-Shabaab terrorist group has been driven from a number of cities but is now blocking some food supply routes. UN Radio's Daniel Dickinson spoke to... UN humanitarian coordinator Felipe Lazzarini. We have again a deteriorating humanitarian situation. We have the drought and uh, we have uh, uh, today a trajectory which is very much similar than 2010 and 2010 was a year which has pre- pre- uh, preceded the famine in our country. How does that deteriorating humanitarian situation manifest itself on the ground? We have a food security uh, uh, issue. We have uh, today more than one million people who are in need of uh, urgent assistance. Among them, we have 250,000 uh, children. And among them, we have 50,000 children who are at the doorstep uh, of uh, death uh, if uh, no assistance is provided uh, now. Uh, the drought means also it's pushing, I mean, the pastoralists and the livestock, uh, and they are searching, I mean, uh, for water. In fact, we have a scenario which is very much similar to what happened four years ago. So insecurity is no longer an issue, or is that just an additional factor? Insecurity is definitely an additional factor. It's further compounding I mean, the impact of the drought. We had the Amisom offensive, which ended by retaking number of cities. Unfortunately, I mean, um, the Al-Shabaab who left uh, these uh, cities uh, are now engaged in asymmetric uh, warfare and are cutting the supply road, which means basic commodities are not reaching, I mean, population in these cities. What needs to happen now to improve the situation? I mean, all will depend, of course, of the next uh, dear season. But I am telling partners and member states uh, that we have learned the lesson of the famine. We have said never again. We need to act uh, now if uh, we do not want, I mean, uh, to repeat uh, uh, a similar scenario, if we do not want a major crisis again in Somalia, but also if we do not want to undermine, I mean, the fragile gain in the peace and state building in the country. Somalia remains and is... uh, a positive narrative in the making, and I do believe that attention needs to be redoubled to prevent, uh, I mean, the development of a new humanitarian crisis only three years after the devastating famine. What's the worst-case scenario if you don't get the help you need? The worst-case scenario is clearly the repeat of what happened in 2011, and in 2011 we said never again. It would be morally, I mean, intolerable 
if uh, we as international community be so heavily present in the country and would let, uh, I mean, a new famine unfold uh, uh, in front of our eyes. Can you remind us what happened during 2011? In 2011, a famine has hit uh, the country with dramatic consequences uh, and more than 250,000 people died only because of the famine, in addition of an already high mortality rate in Somalia because uh, this country, I mean, is uh, hit by abject uh, poverty and has uh, among the worst uh, human development indicator. Is there a case of the international community not really being focused on Somalia because there's so much else happening around the world? There are many competing crises, there is no doubt about this, and the overall envelope for humanitarian assistance has not uh, increased. But I do believe that the member states and the bo- uh, donors understand that by not paying attention to Somalia, not only we take the risk of uh, repeating I mean, a scenario uh, like the famine, but we will also undermine all the investment undertaken during the last few years in the peace and state building, which means the political investment, the economic investment, the security uh, investment. And I do not think that there is any appetite to let the country remain any longer a failed state. That was UN Humanitarian Coordinator Felipe Lazzarini talking to UN Radio's Daniel Dickinson. It's 8.37 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, just a reminder from the SABC that SABC Digital will be broadcasting um, extensive coverage of the elections in Mozambique at www.sabc.co.za slash news. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The state will continue with its grueling questioning of a probation officer, Annette Fakhir, in the Oscar Pistorius murder trial in the North Gauteng High Court in Pretoria today. Fakhir is the defense's fourth and last witness who will testify in mitigation of sentencing. Pistorius was found guilty of culpable homicide after killing his girlfriend Riva Stienkamp in February 2013. He was also found guilty of recklessly endangering the public after after he fired a shot in a crowded restaurant. Lila Magnus reports. The probation officer, Annette Vergeer, says in a report the Blade Runner Oscar Pistorius showed remorse for what he has done. Taking his verbal expression together with his tendering of an apology to the deceased family members, his voluntary payment of a monthly amount to the deceased parents, his offering of a further payment to her parents and his conduct throughout this matter showed that the accused is indeed remorseful. Vergeer mentioned a once-off amount of money Pistorius wanted to pay the Steenkamp family, in addition to the 6,000 rand per month he already paid them. He sold his car for 375,000 rand and wanted to pay the money into the Steenkamp's advocates' trust. 
During cross-examination, State Advocate Karen Nell, however, told Fergie her report was wrong considering the money paid and offered to the Steenkamp family. He said June Steenkamp, Riva's mother, rejected the once-off payment. The accused mother went so far as to say that she rejects that she doesn't want blood money. June Steenkamp's advocate, Dup de Bruyne, explained the money situation outside court. When Riva passed away, they were in financial difficulties. I conveyed it to his legal representatives and uh, he tended to pay 6,000 rand a month uh, to assist them. We wanted to make that public, but the request was from their side to keep it confidential and we have honoured that request. The first, thing is, first time it was raised was this morning and that is what prompted us to, to make these statements. They received the payments for 18 months. De Bruyne added that no civil case will be filed by the Steenkamps against Pistorius. Vergier based the report on interviews and telephonic consultations with the Blade Runner, his family, the court's record and her own experience. She read the report into the court record. The accused realizes the seriousness of the offence and has been confronted with the realities of the circumstances. He has been publicly humiliated, which has had an emotional and psychological impact on him. The accused verbalized an understanding that the trial and its consequences are a small price to pay for his actions and he would sacrifice everything to have Mrs. Tian come back or alive. The accused is a first offender that does not have a history of this type of behaviour. The accused has on several occasions expressed his shock and disbelief at his conduct and the consequences thereof. He accepts that he was negligent and that his negligence caused the death of the deceased. It is highly unlikely that the accused will reoffend. According to the report, Pistorius will not be able to walk on the cement floors in the prison or shower as there are no rails in the showers. The prison do not cater for his physical or psychological needs, far less they are conducive to serve as any rehabilitation for the accused. All that prison will do to the accused is punish him in a manner which is not constructive. It will not assist him but would break him as a person it would take his future away and the broken person will be reintroduced to society. He does not appear to have the normal criminal element that the courts deal with on a daily basis. He is clearly an extremely broken person and will only deteriorate if he is incarcerated. Vergier says Pistorius will be vulnerable in prison and will not be able to protect himself as he will be in danger. She said if he is incarcerated, he will be dependent on the state and not be able to contribute to the society. She considered a community-based sentence in the interests of society. The accused is considered to be a suitable candidate for correctional supervision. Should the Honourable Court consider the same, it is recommended with respect that the accused be placed under house arrest for the duration of the sentence. Steenkamp's family seemed shocked by the second recommendation for correctional supervision as a sentence and one of her nieces could be heard sobbing in court. Now, however, lambasted the report starting with the statistics Vergier used to demonstrate how dangerous prisons in South Africa are. You're not comparing apples with apples. You're looking at the whole prison population. You're trying to explain to court that it's so overpopulated, but we're not dealing with that. We're dealing with pres sentenced prisoners, which are not overpopulated to that extent. 
He said, according to the report, no person with a disability, psychological illness, or who is vulnerable should be incarcerated. He questioned Frigia's knowledge of the prisons in South Africa. Various private prisons have opened the doors. Am I that, right? That is in fact so, my lady. You've not visited any of those? Not as up to date, my lady. You don't know what the conditions in those prisons are? No, my lady. But you're willing to tell this court that no prison in this country would be able to, to cope for this accused. Why can you do that? I have not confirmed with a private prison. Vergier conceded under cross-examination that a person with a disability can be held in the hospital wing of a prison or a single cell where they will be more protected. Before Vergier was asked to testify, Pistorius' agent, Piet van Seil, finished his cross-examination. Nell put it to him that the charity work done by Pistorius was not unique to him. Van Seil said he is still being contacted by people who want Pistorius to be a speaker at functions and events. The pre-sentencing procedures will continue today. Leila Magnus, Pretoria. It's 8.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehoko. Thanks, Lulu, and a very good morning. The South African government wants to unlock the economic potential of the country's oceans. It says if properly explored, South Africa's oceans could create between 8 million, or rather 800 to a million direct jobs and contribute over 1.5 million US dollars to the country's gross domestic product. President Jacob Zuma will release the results of weeks of exploratory work in the issue in Durban this morning. Ndebo Mugobo has more. Almost 70% of South Africa is surrounded by sea, but the country's vast ocean space is relatively unexplored in terms of its economic potential. In July this year, government launched Operation Pakisa, which focused on using the country's coastline to unlock growth and create jobs. Its three-month study focused on, among others, the marine transport such as offshore oil and gas exploration. Officials say if thoroughly explored, the ocean has a potential to contribute 177 billion rent and almost 1 million jobs to the country's economy. And this morning, President Jacob Zuma will give a report back on government's efforts to use the ocean to spare economic growth and create jobs. The South African government has appealed to stakeholders in the car manufacturing industry to embrace long-term wage settlements to secure industrial peace. The government also reiterated its call for the beneficiation of minerals to drive development and the industrialization of the country. The automotive sector has been hosting a conference in Johannesburg to highlight challenges facing the sector globally and locally. Frank Ngomalo reports. Deputy Industry Minister Mzwandi Lemasina says the automotive industry should negotiate multi-year wage agreements to avoid production disruptions. Last year, a protracted strike by workers in the automotive industry severely affected production. Masina also says that South Africa needs to beneficiate her mineral resources to drive industrial expansion and development. Zambia's largest foreign investor, Canadian Mining Group of First Quantum Minerals, warns of the country's decision to raise mining royalties from next year would discourage future ventures and hit jobs. 
Finance Minister Alexandra Chikwanda says Zambia will increase underground mining royalties to 8% from 6% from next year as part of an effort to revamp the industry's tax system. First Quantum Minerals says on the face of it, the new system will not incentivize investment in new capital projects. It adds the new tax system in Africa's second largest copper producer, affecting both underground and open-cost mining, would inevitably lead to fewer new jobs and less opportunities for wealth creation for Zambians. Kenya's oil importers are seeking 8 to 35.560 tons of oil products for delivery for November to January. That's about 40% more than volumes purchased in September to October. The importers are seeking 255.641 tons of gasoline, 206.755 tons of 500 parts per million sulfur gas oil and 373.164 tons of jet fuel for delivery into Mombasa. The tender closes tomorrow. It's not clear why Kenya is seeking more oil products while the country is preparing for a shift to cleaner fuels from January next year where it has to lower sulfur content for both the gasoline and gas oil. Kenya's economy is highly dependent on gas oil for transport, power, production and farming, while many homes use kerosene for lighting and cooking. The World Trade Organization has ruled against India in a complaint brought by the United States concerning restrictions imposed over bird flu fears that halted poultry imports. India halted imports of U.S. chickens and eggs in 2007 over fears they could transmit bird flu. But the United States considered the restrictions excessive as it had not been hit by the H5N1 bird flu since 2004. After bilateral talks failed, the U.S. took the matter to the World Trade Organization, the global arbitrator of trade disputes. Financial indicators this hour, the final hour of Africa, rise and shine. The U.S. dollar trades at 11.04 South African Rand, Nano 2 Botswana Pula, 6.25 Zambian Kwacha, 0.62 British Pound, 0.79 to the Euro. Gold, $1,227, Platinum, $1,257 an ounce, Brand Crude, $85.40 cents a barrel. Economic Update. Thank you, Tabi. So, Tamikuza, are you looking forward to this evening's game? Actually, today's games. There's you a number see, of them on s- today. You see, it's a bumper-to-bumper edition mm. because we'll be watching left, right, and center. Mm. All the African teams that are uh, playing for the African qualifiers, they're in action tonight. But the most one that we're looking at, the young Congo Brazzaville. Bafana, Bafana against Congo. And we, I hope that they will win. Banyana, Banyana, how are they doing banyana, in Namibia? Banyana, Banyana, they, they, they're not doing that uh, bad. It's just that on Sunday they lost to Cameroon 1-0. Mm. But uh, it's not a trance match because they are playing again tonight against the Ghana. So we hope that if they win today, so they will qualify for the semi-final sport, which is not uh, that far away. Okay, give us Good. an update.
Welcome back in your sport. Nigeria's coach Stephen Keshi has claimed his side's struggles in the qualifying for the 2015 Africa Cup of Nations are the result of a sabotage. The Super Eagles suffered a shock 1-0 defeat to Sudan on Saturday and a bottom of Group A with only one point. Nigeria has many off-field issues with the Football Federation in crisis and Stephen Keshi working without a contract. The harsh reality is that the African champions are starting as non-qualifiers to the Morocco 2015 Afcon finals, and they are playing the return leg against Sudan later today. Ex-Nigerian Super Eagles international Musi Ajao explains. It's shocking, you know. How can you how can you play a game social, you know, in magnitude of a game, you know, uh, to qualify for Nations Cup, and now you say you've been you've been uh, sabotaged. Why not say this before the game? At least, you know, they say there's no smoke without a fire, you know. See, there's there's a problem. You will say things in advance. You cannot lose a game, and now you say you sabotage. You South Africa could be in line to host the 2015 Africa Cup of Nations tournament. Morocco hosts the January 17 to February 8th Africa showpiece, but said last week that they want the tournament postponed over Ebola epidemic fears. South African Football Association President Daniel Dan met CAF President Issa Hayatou at the African Women's Championship in Namibia yesterday, reportedly to discuss the possibility of South Africa hosting the tournament. Algeria... Cameroon and South Africa will qualify for the 2015 Africa Cup of Nations if they win their qualifiers later today. South Africa's Bafana Bafana continued with their preparations for their today's return leg match against Congo Brazzaville with a 2-0 win over Pulukwane City last night. The two Bafana goals came from strikers David Zulu and Kemit Erasmus and coach Sheikh Mashaba says that they are happy with their preparations so far. Well, unfortunately, we are faced with a wounded tiger. They will come spitting fire. They won't just come as sheep to slaughter, but we are preparing ourselves. How are we going to really defuse that kind of a, an avalanche of attacking? They will be pumping a lot of balls into our defending area. So our boys at the back will need to be on an alert all the time. Bafana defender Mulomowanda Umatoho, striker Bongani Ndulula and midfielder Andy Lejali set out of training yesterday. But the coach says that there's nothing major as all these players will be ready for the game tonight. Yeah, um, we don't have uh, serious injuries. Yeah, We had those players with a little bit of knocks. You saw we had uh, Matao, Matao, he had uh, some little bit of concussion and the medical staff said let's rest him all together. We had Ndulula, we had a knee, what you call, with Charlie as well, where they not serious uh, uh, problems. Meanwhile, Congo Brazzaville coach Claude Leroy hit back at Mashaba yesterday for what he perceived to be disrespectful comments ahead of last weekend's Africa Cup of Nations qualifier in Pointe Noire. Leroy reacted angrily, angrily to Mashaba's thought on the Congo goalkeeper Chancel Massa. Mashaba singled out the short stopper as the weak link in the Congo lineup, something Leroy refuted. The South African women's soccer team Banyana Banyana will hope to bounce back from their defeat in their opening match when they face Ghana at the Independence Stadium tonight. Banyana suffered a 1-0 loss to Cameroon in their group B match on Sunday when they considered in the dying minutes. And captain Janine Van Vick was confident that the team will get a positive result in the match. 
Still in the African Women's Champions, the Super Falcon head coach Edwin Ocon yesterday commended his team for securing a semi-final place at the ongoing African Women's Championships in Namibia. Nigeria's Super Falcons book a place in the semi-final of the African Women's Championship with a convincing 6-0 win over their Zambian counterparts. The Super Falcons will next play host Namibia in their last Group A match on October the 17th. And finally, in netball, South Africa's under-23 invitational side gave the Australian Centre of Excellence a solid fight last night, but ultimately went down 45-38 in the second match of the SPA International Netball Series in Pochepstron. The Australian outfit who backed a 63-33 victory in the opening game on Sunday won the three-match series with a game to spare. The third and final match of the series will be played on Saturday, while the South African Fast Five squad will face the Australian side to day and Friday in the shorter, faster format of the Netball Fast Five. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories, voting gets underway in Mozambique and Ebola outbreak creates food crisis in West Africa. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Kabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Charles Moyo, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za, tweet us and follow us on Twitter at RiseShineAfrica. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Femi Kuti with the song titled Bang Bang.
life and me don't stop. She said, squeeze me now, now. Bang, 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 I just did go. Bang, 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 I just did go. Bang, 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 bang. Slow 